moving on to inquest and inquest procedure. So you're saying the step before that is obviously uh, preliminary investigations or inquiries, you call them. If you feel there's a case to be answered after a post-mortem or with a post-mortem or based just on the history or circumstances, you either progress through those procedures to inquest or directly to inquest in some situations. What influence does a family have on whether a case goes to inquest at all or not? The family will be asked for their concerns, and, and it might be that the concerns are not implicated in the death. And it might be a problem with communication between the doctor and the family. It might be a matter which should be for the complaints process within the hospital. It doesn't always mean that the concern of the family um, has necessarily caused or contributed to the death. And I would imagine most coroners, having heard any concerns from families, would have them commit their concerns to writing so that the hospital and the doctor, for example, can give them due consideration. There will, of course, be cases which will go straight through to inquest, road traffic collisions, people who have killed themselves, or drug or alcohol-related type deaths or industrial disease cases. So there, there are some things which will be automatically flagged as this is going to go to an inquest. But there will be things which require a lot of thought by the coroner as to what is progressing through to the inquest hearing. It's not about apportioning blame because the law specifically provides that the coroners can't appear to determine civil liability or criminal liability on the part of a named person. And we no longer use the word verdict at an inquest hearing. We refer to conclusions. And is that to distance yourself from civil and criminal proceedings? It's to take away the language of culpability, in a way, because the, the form that a coroner fills out at the end of the inquest used to be called the Inquisition, and there could be trial and inquisition. That has gone. We refer to conclusions, not verdicts. There are protections for witnesses in the coroner's court. If any question has a tendency to incriminate the witness, if they were to answer it, then the coroner has to warn the witness that they don't have to answer it, but if they do, they should answer it truthfully. So there are protections against self-incrimination because that sworn evidence could be used against anybody in the courtroom if it implicated them in the, in the criminal sense. The coroners are alert to all of these things. So who are the inquests for then? Are they for the family? Are they for the public? It's a mix of matters. It fulfills a public health function because coroners can record accurate mortality statistics generally, not necessarily just by inquest. But the bereaved are at the heart of the process. It is their loss. That does not mean that we disregard the rights of other people and all of the usual courtesies apply to everybody. And it's important that people understand that this is a public hearing. So the press and the public at large can attend any inquest hearing. Most coroners publicize their inquest hearings on websites. And the hearing, as I've explained, is inquisitorial. It's fact-finding. No one's on trial. And it's important that everybody understands that. The process is not about people in court putting a case or a submission necessarily. The coroner will ask the questions first. And then the interested persons in the inquest, we don't call them parties, can put relevant questions as permitted by the coroner. And in that way, all of the relevant facts to the death are teased out. 
And once all of the evidence has been taken in that way, the coroner will record a conclusion. And what um, sort of conclusions can you have? And what are the ones more common in the, in the medical world? The conclusions are primarily short-form conclusions. So they are a, a very brief means of capturing what has happened. So there are a range of conclusions. Natural causes, for example, is one. Uh, there may be accident, misadventure, drug-related, alcohol-related, road traffic collision, suicide. Open is a conclusion that is still available. So there are a range of short-form conclusions that the coroners can record. And the usual standard of proof is on the balance of probability. So the test is more likely than not. And what are the other burdens of proof? All conclusions, save for unlawful killing, which is still an option available to a coroner, are on the balance of probabilities. The law on suicide has been developed recently and the Supreme Court judgment in the case of mourners awaited. Suicide used to be the criminal standard of proof, so as to be sure, but the Court of Appeal, following a High Court decision, have confirmed that the standard of proof for suicide in the coroner's court is on the balance of probabilities. So the only remaining standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt to the criminal standard is unlawful killing. So the conclusions are set out. They're printed in the Ministry of Justice Annual Statistics that are produced after every coroner has done a statutory return. I touched upon earlier a narrative conclusion. These are conclusions which are brief, neutral statements of fact, and they are increasingly frequent, particularly in medical-type cases. So the example that I gave recognised complications of necessary occasions of, a, of an urgent procedure are all matters which coroners can determine. So are the coroner's conclusions final? Can they be challenged? And if so, what's the sort of procedure for challenging a coroner's conclusion? There are no rights of appeal against a coroner's conclusions. However, if a coroner has acted unreasonably, unlawfully, irrationally, then their decisions may be subject to a judicial review in the High Court and there is oversight. There are certain instances where a coroner may be directed to rehear an inquest, perhaps if new evidence came to light, and there are certain procedures in place for that to happen. But generally, there is no right of appeal. So clearly you have difficult decisions to make on many occasions. Do you have a framework for working through those decisions or any additional help you can call on within the court to help make your mind up? Yes, there are lots of things. As I mentioned, all coroners have training in respect of judgecraft and the law and procedure that we have to follow. The chief coroner has issued guidance on conclusions. What may happen is that the coroner at a pre-inquest review, if it's a complex matter, may suggest to the interested persons that consideration should be given to a court-appointed expert and to invite a dialogue about who that expert might be. The coroner might already have somebody in mind, but it's important perhaps for the interested persons to be part of that process in terms of who is chosen to be the expert and what the remit of the expert is. So there may be an agreed letter of instruction. So there are lots of things coroners can do depending on the circumstances of each and every case, but chief coroner's guidance is helpful. And there is ever-evolving case law in terms of how coroners should deal with matters. Can I just mention here about the standard of proof? Yeah, of course. There are a number of important features here. 
the highest standard of proof is obviously the criminal standard of proof, and that is beyond reasonable doubt so that somebody is sure. And in the coroner's court, that only applies to the conclusion of unlawful killing currently. The standard of proof that's deployed in every other case is on the balance of probabilities so that something is more likely than not to have occurred. When a doctor signs a medical certificate as to the cause of death, they do so to the best of their knowledge and belief. That's a standard of proof which is even lower than the balance of probabilities. And it's important, I think, that doctors appreciate that distinction because some doctors who refer cases to coroners will say that they're not sure. Well, they don't have to be sure. And it's important that doctors have confidence in what they are signing. It's a solemn declaration when they sign the medical certificate as to the cause of death. But in many cases, the doctor can get advice from a medical examiner now. And it's important to understand that standard that's applied. So with specific reference to medical professionals, why might you call a medical professional to court? Clearly, it's part of the investigation, but what are the thresholds for going from providing a statement to appearing in coroner's court? What coroners want to do is they want to get all of the facts relevant to that investigation. And it may be that the doctor is asked to give their account so what their working diagnosis may have been, what their treatment plan was, what treatment was given. And as we know, there can be many people involved in clinical care with nurses and doctors at various levels. And it might be that, depending on the case, there might be lots of witness statements requested. Um, in some cases, it might be that a senior doctor might give an overview. It largely depends upon whether there are factual disputes that the coroner must resolve because the family may have one account, the doctor's recollection might be another account. And it might be that as part of the process, the medical records are also subject to examination so that the coroner is getting a very clear chronology of events on the patient's journey. And it really is important that that process is assisted by the doctors in a full and very frank way. And in many cases, the authors of statements are sometimes not required to come to court because their statement is so comprehensive or the statement is of such quality that the family members may say, well, everything has been answered now. There might still have to be an inquest, but the coroner can admit that statement to evidence under Rule 23 of the coroner's inquest rules as if the doctor was in court and the coroner can read out what are essentially agreed extracts onto the court record so that there is a public record of what was said. So a good statement can obviate the need for attendance. Right, I'll definitely be sure to pass on that message. <laughs> Equally, a poor statement might invite a further statement, or it might invite further comment from the family which might in itself invite further comments from the doctors, but it becomes a bit of a circular route at that point. And every case is different. Every case is different. And, and I think doctors, in terms of dealing with inquest hearings, this is not meant to be advice for them because they've got to take their own advice, but it's common sense to prepare. It's good practice to have available, legible, ideally contemporaneous records that statements made by the doctor are exactly that. They are formal statements. They will find their way to the family. 
it's prudent for the doctor, I think, to take advice from the assistance that the hospital or their medical defence organisation can provide. Like any other person coming to the court, a doctor could make arrangements to go and see the court in advance to see simple things, just what the seating arrangements might be. And when in court, to answer questions clearly. You're kind of touching on one of the major anxieties of the medical professional, and that's being called to coroner's court. Now, as you've intimated, a lot of the time, this is just part of the investigation. It's not about apportioning blame. But clearly, there'll be instances when people feel that their medical management has contributed or is open to scrutiny with regards to accelerating or causing the death of an individual, especially if the family take that view. In those instances, when people call to coroner's court, Can they bring a lawyer with them? Is it advisable to bring a lawyer with them? It's entirely a matter for every individual. Most inquests take place without, for example, the families instructing lawyers. And it's for the doctor to take advice about their own personal position, apprehensions or whatever it might be. But the coroner will, as the judge, because coroners are judges, coroners will take control of the courtroom and there will be an order to the proceedings. So, for example, the doctor will give evidence first to the coroner, and the coroner will raise questions of the doctor about the statement and any of the matters that the coroner thinks is relevant. And then the interested persons can ask a question. That usually means the family next. The rules provide that if the doctor is represented, their representative goes last to deal with any matters which have arisen. And that's to make sure that the doctor is able, like any other witness, to put forward their best evidence and for any misunderstandings to be corrected with the assistance of the lawyer, for example, or even with the assistance of the coroner. So I understand the apprehension of all witnesses in court, but it is a process. Coroners have a job to do. We're all accountable. I'm accountable for the decisions that I take, and they can be scrutinised. The coroners I've mentioned, if there was a risk of self-incrimination, can warn the doctor or any other witness not to answer the question. Even if that's sort of interfering with the fact-finding, I mean, clearly it won't be viewed favourably if it does progress to a civil or criminal court, but you can just say, I'm unable to answer that question or... Well, usually what would happen if the doctor was represented, the lawyer would invite the self-incrimination warning to be put by the coroner. Sometimes the coroner can see that the question has a tendency to incriminate and would put it straight away. Because anything that the witness, whether it's a doctor or any other person, is likely to incriminate themselves, then they need a protection. If having been given the warning that they don't have to answer the question, they go ahead and answer the question, then they've had the warning. And it's important, but the coroner's jurisdiction is structured around those protections, not to appear to determine civil liability or criminal liability. We don't talk about verdicts. Witnesses have rights not to incriminate themselves. But it's important that if the inquest is to be meaningful, that people are frank with their account. But it's a matter for each individual witness and each individual coroner in the context of the case and the evidence that they are hearing. Because they are all so different. No judge is going to allow, for example, a witness to be harangued. And no witness is going to be put in that position of not being able to cooperate with the coroner's inquiry. And it really is important that everybody understands that. And it's, it's fact-finding. 
It might be a case of restructuring the question in order to get the information in a different way without the ramifications of the statement that was being teed up, if you like. Indeed it is. And it's important that families and other people involved in the process see that there is a full and fearless inquiry on the part of the coroner. And as I mentioned earlier, in many cases, it delays fear, suspicion that something went wrong or something has been covered up or hidden from view. And most families, when I see families in the inquest court, usually say to me, they just don't want this to happen to somebody else. And, and it's a great ethos in the health service that there are mortality reviews, there are lessons to be learned. And the coroner's court is no different. If a coroner has concerns, then the coroner can write what is called the Prevent Future Death Report under Regulation 28 to somebody who can address those concerns. And those reports, if a coroner makes one, are to be answered in 56 days by the person who gets them. When you talk about this and get some, are we talking about an organisation usually rather than an individual? Yes, it can be an individual, but it could be an organisation. It could be to a hospital to do something with a procedure or to do something with some equipment. There's a vast range of topics for Regulation 28. The Chief Coroner's website publishes all of those reports that coroners make and the responses which are given. And it's important that lessons are learnt locally and nationally. And this comes back almost to the public health role you were talking about, oversight board deaths that the coroner provides. It is. And the coroner will send health-related prevent future death reports to the Care Quality Commission. They are not a punishment. They should not be perceived as being punitive. They are about learning lessons. And it's really important that everybody understands the benefits of a prevent future death report in the right circumstances. Coroners have a duty to write those reports. Previously, it was a discretion, but it's a duty now if there are concerns. And from all your involvement in preventing future deaths and the administration around that, are there any themes, not just in healthcare, that you think you can distill an ethos or a philosophy of safety down to that organisations commonly miss or commonly cause problems? I think the easiest thing is for your listeners to have a look at the website and it now categorises different types of organisation that may have had prevent future death reports. So that would include clinical care, mental health services, prisons, police, ambulance service. And it really is important. The last thing the coroner wants to see is the same thing coming before that same coroner in 12 months' time or two years' time when reassurances had been given in the response to the Prevent Future Death report that things had changed. And as I mentioned, most families want to know that lessons have been learned. I should also add that in the inquest court, we record all of our proceedings and any interested person in those proceedings, if they pay £5 and promise not to put the recording on the social media because that would be a contempt of court can have a recording of the inquest so coroners have modernized significantly since reforms and my team and like a lot of other coroners teams are very proud when families write letters of thanks for what's been a difficult time for them and that includes thanks from from doctors also and very often at the end of an inquest families and doctors still have a decent discussion at the end. 
and not every inquest is going to be so tense as people are concerned about. There may be some, but I would venture to suggest that's, that's rare. In terms of gross negligence, manslaughter, is that a conclusion that can be produced by the coroner's court? This is a controversial area, James. What I would say about that is it would be unlawful killing rather than specified as gross negligence manslaughter. But the coroner's rules are such that if they believe that a homicide offence has taken place, and this is not confined to the medical profession, then they can make a referral to essentially the Crown Prosecution Service. So they can stop the inquest. They may well have referred it previously before the inquest. But at, at any stage, the coroner can refer it on for further investigation. This is specifically with sort of unlawful killing? Yes. There may be other types of case where somebody has had a criminal responsibility for the death of an individual. And that might start off with the coroner getting the referral, doing the post-mortem examination, discovering that it was a violent death, then referring it to the police at that point, or even before, if it was a suspected homicide. But even getting through to the inquest hearing, where possibly the police had investigated or the Crown Prosecution Service had looked at it and there were no charges, but then some new evidence appears at the inquest, which might allow for a reflection of those decisions so the coroner can stop and make the referral at that point. And so could this happen with sort of a medical mismanagement or medical mistake? Can you have a, a case where the concerns of the case are so grave that at that point an inquest is uh, abandoned and it's referred on to the criminal court? Or would that always go through the process of reaching a conclusion in the coroner's court if it wasn't sort of violent or unnatural, but a mistake so bad that it met the criteria for gross negligence manslaughter? The coroner would only do that if the evidence justified that course of action in any case regardless of who was facing that potential for criminal prosecution. If the evidence was such that it raised that serious consideration, then that's what a coroner might do. In, in many cases, coroners might have already referred a case or the police may have already looked at a case and decided no further action. We can still sit with a jury in certain cases, usually seven to 11 jurors, Is that for further independence, further quality assurance? It's got a long history. If somebody dies an unnatural death in prison, in state detention, there has to be a jury inquest. If somebody dies because of an accident at work, there has to be a jury inquest. And we have a discretion as well whether to sit with a jury. But again, it can be complicated. Coroners usually request statements, and when they request statements, say within 14 days, that is a court direction. It's not a target. We have to keep to time because the timetable for the hearing is set very, very carefully. And coroners still retain power to compel the production of documents, statements, and attendance at court. 